This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Mitral valve disorders are extremely common, and it's estimated that possibly up to 20% of the population over age 50 has some form of mitral valve disorder. One of the most common is mitral valve prolapse. The majority of these patients live their life without symptoms, but some can go on to develop significant mitral regurgitation or less likely mitral stenosis. How can we recognize mitral valve disease and what's recommended to confirm a diagnosis? How should these patients be followed? Do they need a lifetime of cardiac imaging? When is a cardiologist needed to help manage these patients? We'll discuss these questions and more with Dr. Cardiologist, Dr. Reka Mankad, cardiologist from the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Reka, thank you for joining me and welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, let's talk about something that's quite common, mitral valve prolapse. Any idea what percentage of the population has this condition? This number has been moving over the years as the definition of mitral valve prolapse has become more stringent. But we estimate anywhere from 0.6 to 3% of the population has mitral valve prolapse. But as you get older, we do see it more commonly because you can develop this over time. So it isn't something that you're born with, but you could develop it over time. We used to say it was up to 20%, but we don't think it's quite that high, given that we've gotten stricter with the criteria based on echocardiography. Mm -hmm. Are there any individuals who are at higher risk of having this? Yeah. So actually, uh, some patients with connective tissue disorders are more likely to have this, particularly Marfan's or Ehlers-Danlos. Those are the two sort of big connective tissue disorders that will see mitral valve prolapse a bit more commonly. And some congenital heart disease patients, those with Epstein's, seem to have a bit more mitral valve prolapse as well. But other than those conditions, there's nothing else. But we do see that there can be familial mitral valve prolapse, meaning sometimes it does seem to run in families and might have some genetic predisposition. Mm -hmm. Well, this is quite common, and I hear it in my patients quite often. Let's review the physical exam findings of mitral valve prolapse. What might we hear? Well, for mitral valve prolapse, the classic is the click. It's a non-ejection click. You hear it at the apex of the heart, which is where the mitral valve is located, or that's the closest to that area. So you hear an ejection click, or it's not ejection, but a mitral valve click. And this can be sort of subtle. And obviously, patient's body habitus plays a role. The patient's position also plays a role. Rolling them up onto their left lateral decubitus position can bring this out a little bit more. But sometimes it can be tricky to hear. Now, if it's associated with mitral regurgitation, which it can be, of course, then it's a little bit easier to hear the mitral regurgitation aspect that goes along with the mitral valve prolapse. There are some patients that I have identified a mid-systolic click and assume they've had mitral valve prolapse, and then maybe the next time I see them, I don't hear it. Is that typical? Yeah, it's not unusual because there is load dependency. So depending on whether they're dehydrated or well hydrated sort of changes the where that click might be heard. So you could hear it earlier or later in systole, depending on the filling of the LV. And sometimes if it's very mild prolapse, you might not hear it at all if somebody is sort of well hydrated, heart rate is nice and regular. So yes, it can come and go, especially the milder forms of prolapse. So if we hear a mid-systolic click and we assume it's mitral valve prolapse, or if we hear a click followed by a murmur, 
should these patients receive an echocardiogram? That's a great question. And I think the answer now is yes. Because we know that mitral valve prolapse can lead to mitral regurgitation. Now, the majority of patients won't have mitral regurgitation, but I think it's important to identify the pathology of that mitral valve prolapse, like how bad it is. is it? Is it really thickened valves? Is it something like Barlow's where there's multiple segments of the valve that are redundant and prolapsing? I think that's important because that might be somebody that you follow at different intervals than somebody who has very mild mitral valve prolapse and no mitral regurgitation. So yes, I think an echocardiogram is warranted as a baseline to confirm your diagnosis, as well as to decide about follow-up. Let's talk about follow-up. If we have identified mitral valve prolapse associated with some regurgitation, should we get additional follow-up echoes? So if there is mild mitral regurgitation related to mitral valve prolapse, then you can start looking at follow-up. And if it's mild mitral regurgitation, so that dictates the follow-up, then you would do an echo three to five years. If the mitral regurgitation is more moderate, then one to two years. If the mitral regurgitation is severe, then it's six to 12 months. And that's obviously if the patient has no change in clinical signs or symptoms. But if it's mitral valve prolapse solo with no mitral regurgitation, I think that's when there is no clear-cut role for serial imaging. But you would still want to make sure the patient is aware of that because at any point there could be a change. Those valves can have a cortal rupture, so you could have sort of more uh, acute presentation of mitral regurgitation. So I think it is something that, although there's no serial echocardiography recommended, that that person should certainly see a provider, obviously when they're younger, maybe less often, but something could change over the years. Mm -hmm. When I hear mitral valve prolapse associated with regurgitation, I always document the intensity of the murmur. How does the murmur change if regurgitation worsens? Does it become louder? Does it become longer in duration or, or both? Actually, both. It will get more prominent the more significant regurgitation you have, and it will become holosystolic, usually severe mitral regurgitation. But when it's clinically relevant and it's severe by quantitation, that's going to usually be holosystolic. The moderate or less mitral regurgitation related to prolapse tends to be late systolic. In fact, that's what sort of confirms that it's not severe because it tends to be later in systole. So the more severe it is, uh, the more severe that valve is prolapsing, or if it becomes flail, the murmur get, becomes holosystolic, and it is more prominent, it's louder, and you'll hear it across the precordium. Now, where you hear it the loudest or which direction it goes sort of dictates which scallop of the valve is prolapsing or flail. So if you hear the murmur sort of loudest coming towards the front of the chest, that's an anteriorly directed jet, so that might tell you that it's a posteriorly foot problem. Versus if it's going out to the axilla or the back, that might indicate that it's the opposite, that it's an anterior leaflet problem with a posteriorly directed jet. Mm -hmm. Sometimes these patients seem to come in with symptoms of palpitations. What are the arrhythmias associated with mitral valve prolapse? Well, with mitral valve prolapse by itself, there's no arrhythmias associated with it. Now, there used to be this mitral valve prolapse syndrome where patients would have palpitations but we didn't really see true arrhythmias. Now we recognize that there's two different things that you can see with mitral valve prolapse. Now, if you have significant mitral regurgitation with mitral valve prolapse, you might see atrial fibrillation because the left atrium gets dilated. So we certainly look for that because that's sort of an added feature that tells you the mitral regurgitation is more clinically relevant. 
and you might be looking at proceeding to intervention. But what we're seeing more recently is this notion of ventricular tachycardia related to mitral valve prolapse, and that's malignant mitral valve prolapse syndrome, or it can be, and there is a risk of sudden death. And this particular morphology of the valve, it tends to be redundant leaflets, a fair amount of prolapse, but you don't have to have a lot of mitral regurgitation. And on echocardiography, we define something called mitral annular disjunction. It's actually sort of a separation of where the posterior leaflet of the mitral valve inserts, and then there's the sort of a gap before the posterior lateral wall sort of starts. And the greater that is, there's more ventricular arrhythmias identified, and those seem to come from that posterior lateral wall or the pap muscle. And so patients who do complain of palpitations, you want to look for ventricular ectopy. So a Holter monitor would be important to see the burden of ectopy. You look to see if there's LV dysfunction related to that as well. And then those people might be at risk of more sustained ventricular arrhythmias or sudden death. How about just frequent VPCs? Is that related to the ventricular tachycardia? Yeah, so that's what we see first is frequent ventricular ectopy. And this is still controversial. Not everybody knows exactly what we should be doing about it. But just like ventricular ectopy that we see for other conditions, if there is a lot of it, a high burden, it can lead to LV dysfunction. So it is something that you want to quantitate as far as the burden of it, and then talk to electrophysiology colleagues about possible ablation or other maneuvers. And then again, the question of that risk of sudden death, we know that it's related to this mitral disjunction, but I'm not sure we fully know who is going to develop that more malignant form. Mm -hmm. Is it known how many patients with mitral valve prolapse develop mitral regurgitation? So actually, clinically relevant, it's only about 25 to 30% will go on to have more than moderate mitral regurgitation. The majority, 75% of people with mitral valve prolapse, have mild or less regurgitation. Okay. Well, let's change a little bit now to talk about specific mitral regurgitation. How might we identify this on physical exam? Well, it's really this holosystolic murmur that's heard loudest at the apex of the heart, again, where the mitral valve sort of sits. As far as if you hear the click and then a late systolic, then you're pretty sure that the etiology is due to mitral valve prolapse. If you only hear a holosystolic murmur, you may not know what it's due to. It could be due to annular dilatation, either the LV or the LA could be dilated. If the mitral regurgitation murmur is pretty significant and you're wondering if it's severe or not, when you have severe mitral regurgitation, your LV should be dilated. So the PMI should be displaced both inferiorly and laterally and be a bit enlarged, although the displacement is the biggest sign because that tells you that the LV is seeing a lot of mitral regurgitation. So it's hard to have severe mitral regurgitation chronically without LV dilatation. Now, if you have acute severe mitral regurgitation, obviously a very clinically different scenario, but that murmur can be very soft and that LV won't be dilated. Other than mitral valve prolapse, are there other known causes for developing mitral regurg? In resource-limited countries, we still see rheumatic heart disease as the primary cause of mitral regurgitation. But in resource-rich countries, mitral valve prolapse is the most common cause of mitral regurgitation. Other causes are endocarditis. That's always a potential. But that's really pretty much it. Now, we are seeing atrial fibrillation, longstanding atrial fibrillation leading to mitral regurgitation, but we don't know the exact number for that at the current time. But we know that that atrial dilatation that happens with atrial fibrillation can dilate the annulus and lead to mitral regurgitation as well. 
So we have identified mitral regurgitation on physical exam, and I assume an echo is the best imaging study to obtain. How should we follow these patients? Yeah, we talked about this a little bit earlier. So if it's mild mitral regurgitation, again, an echo every three to five years, moderate one to two years, severe every six to 12 months. But with severe mitral regurgitation, we'd really be looking to see if somebody is a candidate for intervening on that mitral regurgitation, even if they're asymptomatic. So there are certain criteria we want to look at that echo as well. That's why we do such frequent intervals. When it's more severe, we're looking for LV dilatation and a drop in ejection fraction. Uh, but certainly uh, these are as long as the patient remains asymptomatic and nothing new develops. When should we get a cardiologist involved in these patients? I think it's wise to get a cardiologist if the mitral regurgitation is moderate or greater. And I think primarily the reason is to do those follow-up evaluations and echocardiograms. We don't want to miss that window of opportunity because if we have the LV function drop, there is a higher risk for intervening, meaning the ejection fraction may not bounce back. So I think having a cardiologist involved to make sure that you're on top of doing those serial imaging and following for subclinical signs that the LV is failing is really important. So timing for intervening is really important in these patients? Yes. Okay. Well, the mitral valve is kind of an interesting valve in that some of them can be repaired. Can you describe that? Yeah, in fact, that's what we would like to have done the majority of the time. Repairing a mitral valve is much better than replacing it. And why that is, is because repairing it allows the LV geometry to still stay relatively normal. A lot of the chordal structures remain, and there's been data for years that repair actually has a mortality benefit over replacement. So if the valve is repairable, that really should be the way to go. Now, that really depends on your surgeon. So the more experienced heart centers and experienced surgeons have better numbers as far as repairing valves. Now, the more complex the valve disease, if it's mixed mitral stenosis and mitral regurgitation, that's going to be less likely to be repaired. If it's due to endocarditis, that's less likely to be repaired. And rheumatic valve disease really is not repaired at all. But mitral valve prolapse, even if it's multi-scallop prolapse or flail leaflets, really repair is the way to go. And what they do is they frequently put an annuloplasty ring, so they tighten up the annulus of the mitral valve because that tends to be dilated. And then they'll do various uh, maneuvers on the valve leaflets themselves. They cut away the extra tissue on the scallop that's prolapsing or flail. Sometimes they put neocordi as well to sort of tighten up the valve. And that has a great longevity related to it. So mitral valve repair is preferred, but you mentioned several groups of patients who really need mitral valve replacement. Correct. All right. Well, let's talk about the different options for mitral valve replacement and maybe the advantages and disadvantages of each. So our two big replacements are mechanical mitral valve prosthesis and a tissue mitral valve prosthesis. The big thing about the mechanical prosthesis is you have to have anticoagulation. And currently, the only anticoagulation that is approved and recommended is warfarin. So that means forever. For as long as you're around, you need to take warfarin. And the mitral valve, that's a trickier one when it's replaced with a mechanical prosthesis. You really can't go very long, you know, even a few days, withholding anticoagulation. So these patients might need to be bridged depending on if they have other risk factors. 
The tissue valve doesn't need the anticoagulation lifelong, although we frequently will use it for a few months after the replacement. But then remember, there might be another indication for that patient to be on anticoagulation. Maybe they have atrial fibrillation or something else. But tissue valves have a longevity. They don't last forever. So we say about 10 to 15 years is how long a tissue prosthesis lasts. So then you'd be looking at another procedure when that valve fails. That's why we use age as sort of one of the things as far as determining whether we do a mechanical or a tissue valve. The younger you are, we prefer mechanical valves because if the valve degenerates in 10 to 15 years and you're only in your 30s, then you're looking at another procedure in your 40s. And then what type of valve do you do? And what are we looking at in 50s or 60s? So that is why we tend to pick mechanical valves for younger patients. But again, we don't have a crystal ball. So we put somebody on warfarin. They have to be on warfarin. What if they develop some other medical problem? They require surgery, something else. They're at risk for falls later in life. So lots of things to consider. And so clearly shared decision-making is so very important. And the last issue when you're trying to pick is if it's a female of childbearing age that you're doing valve replacement on and the risk of warfarin uh, during pregnancy. So again, you really need to talk to your colleagues who deal with pregnant females who have mechanical valves in the whole discussion about anticoagulation risk. I should have asked this when you were describing mitral valve repair, but I assume those patients do not need anticoagulation. Is that correct? That's correct. Sometimes we'll do it for a few months afterwards. If they also had atrial fibrillation and a surgical maze is done, it might be done for a few months afterwards. But no, they don't need any anticoagulation lifelong. Okay. I'd like to finish with just a little bit of discussion on who requires SPE prophylaxis because the recommendations have changed over the past decade or so. Who is now advised to have SPE prophylaxis? So anybody who's had a mitral valve repair or replacement. When you're talking about mitral valve disease, if you have mitral valve prolapse, you no longer need antibiotic prophylaxis. That's gone away quite several years ago. Obviously, if you've had infective endocarditis on the mitral valve, then you need mm -hmm. antibiotic prophylaxis. But both repairs and replacements, because repairs do have prosthetic material with the annuloplasty ring, they and uh, either mechanical or tissue prosthesis need antibiotic prophylaxis a lifelong. Well, Reka, you've given us some really good information on mitral valve disease. Can you summarize by giving maybe two or three key points? Okay, number one, mitral valve prolapse is common. It is anywhere from 0.6 to 3% of the population. And really you can identify it on physical exam with a mitral click. If you hear mitral valve prolapse, get an echocardiogram. Number two, mitral regurgitation is common as well. And mitral valve prolapse is the most likely reason for mitral regurgitation. Although the majority of patients with mitral valve prolapse will not have significant mitral regurgitation. And number three, remember that more than moderate mitral regurgitation really requires a cardiologist's input for serial echocardiography, as well as really that key issue of determination of timing for intervention. We've been discussing mitral valve disease with Dr. Reka Mancad, a cardiologist from the Department of Cardiovascular Diseases at Mayo Clinic. Reka, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. 
If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.